Hello, and welcome to the Council Stable Podcast. This is your host, Spencer O'Neill, and this week on the Council Stable Podcast, I'm going to discuss a, uh, a case that I had a couple years ago, went to trial, where a young man uh, ended up with a life sentence. And I'm going to pose the question to you, should he have gotten life? So, to begin, um, first we're talking about a young man uh, from Putnam County who is currently uh, in the Department of Corrections here in the state of Florida and is currently looking at no date of release. Uh, He has life plus a sentence of, I believe, 25 or 30 years. So if somehow, I guess, he was to be, I don't know, reincarnated as the same person and DOC was to find out, they'd put him back in jail. I don't know. I don't exactly know how that works, but... Anyways, <clears throat> so to start off, let's, let's put some of the backstory of this young man. Um, he grew up in Palaka, and as a young man, when he was in high school, he was on the basketball team, and I'm told he was quite good. Um, in fact, when we'd be in court, the, the mayor of, of Palaka, who at the time was also a, a criminal defense attorney, would come and stop by and come talk. So this young man, uh, who was a well-known basketball player within the town, um, grew up in a, in a rough neighborhood, and he was poor. And when he was 17 years old, his mother got evicted from her apartment, and he and his mother, uh, they became homeless. And while they were homeless, uh, he was floating around from from home to home with girlfriends or friends or whatever it was. And there was a situation where he was arrested and charged with a burglary of a dwelling for going into a trailer and, and taking a pair of shoes. I think he took th- two pairs of shoes. And, you know, he sat in jail for a while. And I think they threatened him with couple of years of probation and like six months in jail and one day when he was in court um, I think he, he told his attorney that just asked for time and they offered him 366 days which is a year and a day which is the lowest prison sentence you can get and he took it and he went to prison for I don't know a couple of months and then went home um, something to know about people that choose to take a year and a day or, or why someone would get a year and a day Um, As I stated prior, you know, 365 days exist in a year. And in order to go to prison, you have to go to, you have to get an incarcerative sentence that is more than a year. So the lowest prison sentence you can get is 366 days. It's a a year and a day. And it's a pretty common thing to happen um, during negotiations. One of the reasons this would happen is, you know, the state attorney will decide that they want to send a message and that the person needs to go to prison. And they don't necessarily want them to go for a long period of time, but they want to get a message across. Um, another thing that comes into consideration is cost. You know, uh, if you are staying in county for 364 days, you hypothetically would cost the county money. And if you're the state attorney in the county, you know, it may seem like an advantageous thing for you to do to, to offer the person 366 days as opposed to 364 so that the state of Florida picks up the tab and the person has to go to the Department of Corrections as opposed to staying within the county jail. So anyways, so this gentleman, he took 
366 days, and he went to prison, and he was convicted of burglary of a dwelling. Now, the reason this is important, obviously that's not a life sentence, is the reason that this person got a life sentence is due to something called a prison releasee reoffender statute. And essentially, it is a mandatory sentencing guideline that occurs when somebody qualifies. Um, and in order to qualify, you have to have a prior conviction with a prison sentence. And the prior conviction needs to be one of a number of things. Uh, it could be a carjacking. It could be a burglary of a dwelling. Um, it could be murder. It could be a number of things. But there's, there's a list of you know, um, crimes that are set out where if you are convicted of one and you go to prison, and upon your release, within three years of the last date of your incarceration, you commit a new crime, um, which is one of the qualifying offenses, then you can be considered a prison releasee reoffender. Now, prison releasee reoffender, they're looking at a mandatory sentence of the maximum sentence. So if you, you know, are unable to work out some sort of deal with the state and you decide that you want to go to trial and you lose, then you get the max. And there's no discretion for the judge. The judge has no discretion. In fact, that, that discretion was taken away from them by the legislature, you know, within the statute. And really, the only person that has any discretion at that point in time is the state attorney. And, you know, we'll get to that in a moment. So in this circumstance, uh, let's set out the, the facts as far as the basic facts of what occurred on the crime that he was convicted of. So in December of 2018, um, this young man was in a vehicle and went to one of the local gas stations in Palaka. And while he was there, he was there with, in one car with another young man, uh, a juvenile. And then a, a, another car pulled up that had uh, three young men in it that were also juveniles. Um, my client was the only person that was not a juvenile, and I believe he was 20 at the time. So while they're at the gas station, um, and you can see this on the surveillance video from the gas station, uh, a truck pulls up. And in the truck, there are two young white men, and you know they see something happen at the gas station. Essentially what happened is... Um, you know, there was an argument and, and a fight in the gas station between some people. Now, the people in the truck, they had nothing to do with it. Um, you know, my client was not involved in the fight, but he was with a group of people that were involved in the fight. And the fight was very brief. But after the fight breaks up, uh, the, the people in the truck start talking to one of the juveniles. And essentially what happened is there's a discrepancy on what they were asking for, but they were asking for drugs. It could have been cannabis. It, it might have been cocaine. Um, it's in dispute as far as what they were asking for. But to be honest with you, it doesn't matter. The reason that that's the reason they meet up is they meet up and essentially they randomly meet up at this gas station. And these young men tell the, the truck to follow them to another business that's around the corner. And while this is happening, you know, the young men in the truck follow this vehicle over to this local business 
and there's a plot that is conjured up by this group of young men uh, to essentially rob the, the, the dudes in the truck. Now, they go from the business and they have them follow them into a neighborhood, an apartment complex in Palaka. And at the apartment complex, the two vehicles uh, sort of pull into this dark area where there's like a roundabout and a parking lot. And they park the vehicle. And when the truck pulls up, uh, the truck gets there and the two young men are jumped. So the driver is beaten. He's hit with a gun. And he's pulled from the seat. And, you know, he's demanded of his, his wallet and money and anything that he has. The passenger um, is also punched and taken from the vehicle and demanded of everything he has. And I think he has a bank card on him. So some of the young men take the, the, the passenger from the truck and they take him to another car, um, the car that my client was driving, and they put him in the back seat. Now there's two people according to the, the victim that was from the truck that was essentially kidnapped. Um, he, there were two people in the front seat and two people in the back seat. And while he was in the truck, they had a gun pointed at him, and essentially they drove him to the ATM across town. And when they got to the ATM, you can see from the surveillance video, you see the car drive by, and then it drives out of the view of the ATM. And then you see this, this young white man walk up to the ATM. And when he gets there, um, according to him, one of the young men from the, or from the car that had kidnapped him told him not to do anything funny and was standing out of the back of the car and pointing a gun at him from like, I don't know, 20 feet away. Um, so the, you know, the, the young man from the truck, he goes up there to the ATM and According to him, he panics and can't figure out how to use the ATM because under the, the stress of the situation. And essentially, after a couple of seconds, he just drops his card and he runs across the street. And he runs across a pretty major road. You know, he runs through a ditch across a three-lane road on both sides, so six lanes, gets across the street to a business, and then tells them to call the police. So at that point in time... Um, the vehicle obviously leaves the scene because the person that they had taken to the ATM had run on them. Um, they never fired the shot. And, you know, at that point in time, there's all of a sudden a manhunt, essentially, to look for whoever these people are. So when the young man that escaped from the ATM calls the police, uh, he tells them where the truck is that his friend is at. And the police come to him at the ATM. He goes back across the street to the ATM and he meets the police. And then they go to the scene of the apartment complex where the truck is. And when they get there, they find the other young man, the driver of the truck. And he doesn't have his keys. He can't drive the truck. He doesn't have his cell phone. He has um, you know, sort of a bloody upper temple area because he got beat up. And he's asking people in the neighborhood to, to help him call the police. And I don't know if anybody helped him or not. I don't believe anybody helped him. So at this point in time, you know, the police go and they start looking for the vehicles. And, you know, they, they get the story as far as how they met up with them and all of that. And they find the surveillance video 
and they know kind of what the vehicles are because the young men are able to tell them what the vehicles were like. And so the police start searching for the vehicle. Um, they're looking for my client's vehicle, which is like a, a black sort of older BMW model. And they're looking for another vehicle, which is a, a silver uh, Volkswagen Bug, right? So my client is arrested about two hours later um, off the side of a road, and he's the driver of the, um, the black vehicle. And there's a young juvenile in the vehicle with him um, that is supposed to be involved as well, and he's in the passenger seat. So, you know, we, he's arrested, he's brought to jail. The next day, the young man that was in the back of the car uh, comes to the police and says, you know, I remember one of the people in the back of the car. He went to high school with me. And it turns out that my client and this young man were in the same graduating class. And essentially, he identifies my client as one of the young men in the back of the car. So he is charged with robbery with a firearm. He's charged with kidnapping with a firearm. And he has another count of robbery with a firearm. The state charges him with robbery with a firearm of both of the victims in the vehicle and then kidnapping with a firearm of the, the one gentleman that was taken from the scene and taken to the ATM that says that he recognizes my client from high school. Now, there's a lot that happened as far as the trial, and I won't get into all that. Um, you know, whether he's guilty or not, you know, my client, we went through the trial. It was complicated. There was a lot more ins and outs than what I just explained. And I thought we had a very good argument as far as for why he was not involved. Um, he did testify and tell his side of the story, which I thought was very credible. And for us, our argument was that essentially they identify him as this person that's involved and that he was at the gas station, but he wasn't at the robbery later, that he was hanging out with the young man that was arrested with him. And that the young man that was arrested with him was involved in the robbery scheme and that they had actually driven to the neighborhood where the robbery occurred separately from the other vehicle, the silver bug. And that they went to an apartment to go hang out and that while they were at the apartment, the other young man left and my client was in the apartment with other people. And he didn't know that a robbery had occurred and that later in the afternoon, or later that night, sorry, it was an afternoon. Um, later that night, um, essentially, the young man that w was arrested with him called him and asked him to come pick him up and asked him for help. And he went and picked him up and then, you know, learned of what had happened and they were arrested shortly thereafter because they were looking for his vehicle. So that was what we went to trial with. Um, before trial, uh, my client was offered 15 years. And... You know, we talked very in-depth about whether that was a good idea. I personally suggested to him that he probably should accept 15 years. Um, it seemed to me that the evidence against him was pretty good, that his chances of success were not great, that there was a chance that we could achieve success and find him not guilty, but that there was a large risk. And the large risk was, and it had been stated very openly by the state attorney, 
that if he didn't accept the offer from the state that they were going to be pursuing him as a prison release reoffender, which I told you would come back, and that he would receive two life sentences, essentially. Um, the robbery with a firearm is punishable by life, and as a prison release reoffender, you get the maximum sentence, so it would be a life sentence. Um, so there were two counts of that. And then the kidnapping, I believe, was a first degree, so he would have gotten 30 years for that. Um, so before the trial, we had the conversation as far as whether or not a plea is a good idea. And, you know, at, at the time, he's 21, 22, when we're having these conversations. He had been in jail for about a year while we were doing the discovery and doing the depositions and putting together the theory of the case. And we had kind of run to the end of time to negotiate. And, you know, what I told him was, you know, at the time I'm 33, something like that. And I looked at him and I told him, you know, how old do you think I am? And I think he said I was, you know, somewhere around 35. He was pretty close. We had, you know, we had known each other for a while at that point. I'm pretty sure he knew exactly how old I was. And I asked him how old he was. And he told me, you know, I'm 22 or 21. And what I asked him was, you understand that if you take the 15 years, I know it's day for day, so you're going to be 36 when you get out. I'm almost 36. Do I look anywhere near like I'm about to die? Do I look anywhere near like my life is almost over? I mean, I have a lot of life left. Wouldn't you agree? And he agreed with that concept. Um, however, what he stated was essentially that um, while he was in jail, um, he had had his first child that was born. And at the time that we had the conversation, his child was about five or six months old, and he never got to meet his child, uh, not face-to-face -face at that point in time. I'm hoping that has changed while he's been in prison, but at the time, it, you know, he had never met his, his child face-to-face -face because he had been incarcerated from the time that the, the baby's mother was pregnant up until that point in time. And, you know, the, the mother of the child used to bring the kid to, to, to court, essentially, so that he could at least look at his child, um, which was very heartbreaking. And what he said to me was, you know, I didn't have my father when I was young. He's ironically actually about to be released now. Um, and I think his father was released about three months after he got his life sentence, which is terribly ironic. It's, it's almost poetically ironic and, and terrible. And that he didn't want to do that to his kid, that he would do anything to try to avoid that. And, you know, I pointed out to him that Essentially, if you do this, I mean, you went to jail before your kid was born. Your child's going to be still a teenager. I know you're going to miss all the young years, but you can still have an impact and you can still try to do something positive for your child. If you're in for life, I mean, it's pretty much over. You're your dad from prison and there's, there's no coming back from that. Um, he chose to go to trial. He looked at me and he said, Mr. O'Neill, I'm, I'm innocent and I didn't do this. And I need you to fight for me, and I need you to help me. And from that day forward, we never had another conversation about playing because he had made his point clear. And at that point in time, my job was clear as well, which was I don't care what the, the you know, chances are. It doesn't really matter at this point. He, is, he knows what he's getting into. We've had the discussion. I may not agree with his choice, but it's not my job to agree with his choice. It's my job to perform my job and go and make the best case possible to try to get this man out of a fucking cell.
So, uh, you know, it was probably three or four months after that that we had the trial. And when we went through the trial, at the end of it, uh, it was a it was a five day trial, and at the end of it, he was found guilty of one count of robbery with a firearm and one count of kidnapping with a firearm. He was found not guilty of one count of robbery with a firearm. He was found not guilty of robbing the man, the driver of the vehicle. Um, I can't believe I forgot this part, but don't videotape yourself committing crimes. Just throwing that out there. I don't know that I need to be an attorney to tell you that. But what happened is not my client, but one of the young men at the scene that was from the Silver Bug, um, I guess thought it was cool to Snapchat them committing the crime. And on the Snapchat, you can see my client walk up from behind and it appears as though he has a gun in his hand and he moves it from his hand over to his pocket and puts it in his pocket. And he walks up to the young man that was actually arrested with him and you see him talking to him and you see him talking to one of the victims and then he sort of walks off the screen. Now we had addressed the video at the trial and I guess I misspoke earlier. I, I didn't mean to say that he didn't know that the robbery had occurred. What his testimony was, was that he was upstairs. He noticed that his friend had been gone for like 15 minutes. He went downstairs, saw that there was a group of people out in front of the apartment complex, went down there, saw what was happening. One of the other young men from the Silver Bug that was arrested, not the passenger in the vehicle with him when he was arrested, but another young man from the other vehicle was his cousin. And you can see him go up to his cousin and say something. And what he said was that he went to his cousin and told him to get the hell out of there and that it was a bad idea and then he walked away. That was his story. So that's what we went with. Um, that, you know, the guy, the, the man in the back of the car maybe was confused, maybe was able to identify him from that moment, but he had misidentified him from the back of the vehicle and that he was in this video because he walked up there to try to get his cousin off the scene. Anyway, so... We go through the trial. It's a tough trial. And at the end of the trial, he's found guilty of one punishable by life crime and then another that's a first-degree felony. And sentencing is set out about a month and a half. And at that point in time, I know that the only way that I can keep this man out of a life sentence is essentially to go beg the state attorney because the state attorney is the sole person that has the option and the ability to choose whether or not they're going to pursue prison releasee reoffender. If the state attorney pursues prison releasee reoffender and is able to prove that he has the prior conviction and the conviction for this and that both are qualifying offenses and it happened within three years of his date of release from the last prison sentence, then he gets the max. The judge has no discretion. So I went to the state attorney multiple times and I essentially begged her. You know, I begged her for 30 years. I begged her for 40 years. I begged her for anything that wasn't life. And the answer that I always got was, you, your client put the victims through a trial. Um, your client essentially said that they were not truthful or that they were not saying the truth. 
and he knew what he was getting into when he decided to go and that I am going to pursue the maximum and I'm going to have him charged as prison release reoffender. Um, I mean, I, I begged her, I think three times I went to her office and sat with her for an hour and just went over all the reasons why it was wrong. And I never got anywhere. It was like talking to a brick wall. It was actually very depressing. And, you know, I believe that she thought that she was doing the right thing and doing her job. Um, I still don't think it was the right thing. But once again, that's why we're making this podcast. So maybe you can decide whether you think it is. Now, I understand punishment. I understand that he went through a trial. I understand that he was convicted of a terrible crime. I mean, robbing somebody with a firearm and then also taking them in your car with a firearm, essentially kidnapping them and taking them across town to go and get money out of an ATM is a terrible thing to do. Let's not pretend it's not. I mean, let's not operate in a universe where we're saying that this isn't a big deal. It is a big fucking deal. However, the question is, does it deserve a life sentence? And does it deserve a mandatory life sentence? Now, when you're talking about mandatory sentencings, like a prison release reoffender or something called a habitual felony offender or habitual violent felony offender. There's all sorts of them in Florida. What you're talking about are recidivism statutes. Now, recidivism is when a person commits a crime and then they're punished for it with either probation or prison or jail or whatever. And when they're done with their sentence, uh, they go out and commit a crime again. A lot of times we're focusing on people that commit the same crimes over and over again. People that are thieves and go out and steal all the time and they have like 20 thefts, you know. The idea is that if you are a recidivist and you're someone who commits crimes perpetually, that at a certain point in time, you know, you should get a harsh sentence. And that's what habitual, or that's what the prison release reoffender is, is You've committed a crime that qualifies. It's what we consider a bad crime. It's one of these top tier crimes. And then once you're released, within three years, you go and commit another one of these top tier crimes. And because of that, you are not to be trusted and you are to get the max if you're convicted. It's not even a three strike. It's really two strike or one strike, depending on how you look at it, I guess. It's it's one and done, and then the second time you're out. Like, it's... It's not great. <clears throat> However, in this circumstance, the young man was under the age of 21 when the crime was committed and 21 when he was convicted. Now, there's statutes in Florida called youthful offender where someone can get below guidelines, uh, below a score sheet when they you know, are a youthful offender. They're a person under a certain age and, and you, know, they can, you can bring that forward as mitigation and try to get a lesser sentence from a judge. And the judge has the ability to choose whether or not they're going to actually sentence them as a youthful offender. Well, the problem is that the prison releasee reoffender doesn't isn't something that can be taken away with a youthful offender. In fact, it very specifically says so. You know, if you are a prison releasee reoffender, youthful offender, too bad, so sad, doesn't apply. So that wasn't something we could fall back on. We literally were at the mercy of the state attorney. And the state attorney was not giving this young man mercy at this point. So we get to sentencing, and the judge, who was a fair, is a very fair judge, um, a person that I have a lot of respect for, 
Uh, we get to sentencing and essentially finds out that, you know, my client is prison releasee reoffender and the state wants the max. And that, that means that he's got to give my client life plus 30. And he looks at the state and he tries to beat the state out of it. He barrages her for 20, 30 minutes. He asks where the victims are of the crime and why they're not here to testify at the sentencing. And essentially she said they don't have to. And he asked them, he asked her if the victims had ever known about what was going to happen at sentencing. And she said that she had told them once and they said that was a lot of time. And they were okay with the 15 years, but, you know, whatever happened, happened. And, you know, he very angrily said, well, why aren't they here now? And she once again said they didn't have to be. Unfortunately, you know, they don't, they don't have to be. You can't force the victim to do anything. You have no jurisdiction over them. Um, and after about 20 or 30 minutes of trying to convince her that it was a terrible idea to pursue prison release, you reoffender, and really running into the same brick wall that I had, uh, he stormed off the bench and was gone for about 50 minutes. And what I found out was that he was looking feverishly for any way to not do what he was told he had to do. And there is no way for him to not do what he was told he had to do. The discretion is taken away from the judge at that point. And I bring that up because in Florida, judges are appointed, but then they're also elected. So these are elected officials. These are people that the community has chosen to be there. They're a trusted person with credentials that the community believes is the type of person that we want making these choices. Now, the elected official is stripped of discretion, and instead the discretion is given to a public employee, but a public employee that is hired by the state, given great power, with no election, and the only person that has any ability to say anything about you know, their employment or not is you know, their direct employer, which is that state attorney of that district. So realistically, what happens is you take the discretion away from a person that's selected by the community and is trusted and given to a person that decides they want to be a state attorney and works hard to do so. So I don't want to, to shit on them essentially, but you've given the discretion to a person that is not in the position where the community has trusted them with anything. They're an employee of the state that was chosen by their employer, the state, and they meet qualifications, but the public really has no idea how they got there or who they are. And the public has no way of stating their displeasure beyond, you know, media, essentially. So after about 50 minutes, the judge comes back and begrudgingly says that he's going to give him the sentence that he has to give him, which was life and then 30 day or 30 years. So life plus 30 years. So I guess when he gets reincarnated, you know, he can have 30 more years on his next life and makes a statement that, you know, the legislature has taken the discretion away from him and that realistically the only thing that they're able to do beyond an appeal is go to the legislature and demand change because what happened is wrong. And after that, 
you know, essentially my client was taken away and I, th- I spoke to him once more just about the fact that the appeal was going to be filed and what we were going to talk about in the appeal, but I haven't seen him since. Um, you know, there's a thing after a trial when, when the client is gone and the crying mother is there and you've given her a hug and you told her that you're sorry that, you know, your son's life is over essentially and that you agree that it's not fair but there's nothing you can do about it, that you're kind of left alone. And I know that's not exactly why we, we got into this podcast, but I did want to share this part of it. At that moment, I was an hour away from my house. And it was, you know, seven o'clock at night after a lengthy hearing, a very dramatic and emotional hearing. You know, there's a mother that's telling me her son's life is over and it's very emotional and she's crying and she leaves with her family. And then I go into my office and there's nobody there. You know, you're essentially left alone. Everyone else has gone home. They're not going to stay. You know, I, I, I can't blame them, you know. You know, they have lives and families as well and it wasn't their trial. But it's a very lonely feeling when you're left in the shadow of, you know, the destruction that happens in the criminal justice system. And, you know, all I can think is I can't imagine how that young man felt. And I I just wonder, you know, how often does he think about the day that we were in that jail and I told him 15 years was a good idea and that he shouldn't do it. And he looked at me and said, please help me. So anyways, we made this podcast today because I wanted to pose a question, just a question for, for you, the listener to consider, did my client deserve life? I think I've stated my position, but what is yours? This was the Council Stable Podcast. Hello, this is Spencer O'Neill, the host of the Council Stable Podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, I wanted to ask you all to please like and subscribe to the podcast, wherever it is that you get the podcast. I didn't want to interrupt this episode with a like and subscribe, so I decided to leave this one alone. Um, So please, you know, show your support wherever it is so that hopefully more people can hear this. Um, I do still plan on putting out another episode, I'll put out way more episodes, but another episode concerning the medicinal cannabis in the state of Florida and what you should and shouldn't do. I'll tell you very basically, there's a lot you shouldn't do and very little that you can do. We'll get to that later. Um, Just sort of a last thought concerning this case, I did want to say that you know, there was a lot as far as the facts of the case that I didn't really get into. I didn't think that it was relevant. I just wanted to set out the basic facts and kind of put it out there for you to decide on whether or not you thought it was a just and right sentence. And I hope that you enjoyed the podcast. I hope that you'll enjoy future podcasts. And thank you very much. <laughs>